Welcome to Women in Science, a podcast series where we interview some inspiring women who are breaking barriers in their fields and making remarkable contributions to research. We chat to them about the science they love and their unique journey as scientists. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short, and in this episode, we chat to Queensland's first female chemistry professor, UQ's Professor Mary Garson. Mary's a trailblazer who's made an incredible impact in the world of science and even has a species named in her honour. Welcome to another episode of our Women in Science podcast. Today I have the pleasure of being joined by Mary Garson, who's a professor of chemistry here at the University of Queensland. Welcome, Mary. Hello, Kirsty. All right, so maybe just to start off today's episode, do you want to tell us a little bit about your journey and how you ended up where you are today? Uh, Kirsty, it's quite a long journey. So I hope <laughs> the abbreviated, <laughs> the abbreviated journey, yeah, exactly. the highlights. Um, so, as you can probably already tell, I come originally from England. So, I'm going to tell you that my early career started off at a selective girls grammar school, where I enjoyed chemistry. I think I could tell you that at the age of 12, I knew I was going to be a chemist. Mm. I had great science teachers, and uh, I won a place to study science at the University of Cambridge. And I think that was a really important phase of my life because, uh, as you know, Cambridge is a residential university. And so during the day, you go to lectures and labs in the chemistry department. But after that, you return home to a residential college. And in my case, it was a woman's residential college. In those days, there were no mixed colleges. Uh, they were all either men only or women only. So I went back to an environment in which I was surrounded by smart women and women excelling at what they were doing. And that was just a fantastic time. Uh, I stayed on, I did a PhD, and then I decided to have the gap year that I hadn't had before going to university. And I went to Italy to do a postdoc. A fringe benefit, of course, is learning Italian and enjoying art history. And uh, food, don't forget uh, food. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and food and wine. Uh, and after which, uh, by the end of that year, my PhD supervisor was literally tearing his hair out, recognising that I must have some talent, I suppose, and uh, drew me back to Cambridge to research fellowship position at a different college, but once again, a woman-only college in, in terms of the students. Uh, and after three years there as a research fellow, by that stage, I decided I'd had enough of being an academic. And uh, wait for it, I moved into industry. Mm. I became a medicinal chemist working for a pharmaceutical company. So probably already the listeners are going, how did she end up in Australia? How did this woman end up in Australia, right? We're waiting. We're all, we're all sitting on the edge <laughs> of our seats. It's a question that my solicitor asked me, in fact, uh, when, when we update my will, like, how did you get here? Uh, so uh, industry was an interesting experience. However, at that time, it was quite clear that the biologists ran the programs. 
They dictated how programs developed, uh, what the target should be. The role of the medicinal chemist was literally to make organic molecules as quickly as possible. And so in terms of an intellectual activity, a scholarly activity, uh, it was a little bit uh, frustrating. It didn't matter whether you did things well or did things badly. It was just produce as many compounds as quickly as you can. And once we've got the biological data, thank you, here's your bonus. And now the biologists will take over. So I began to think about other opportunities. And just prior to leaving Cambridge and going into industry, I had come to Australia for a six-week, you might call it an extended vacation, but I gave lectures at a number of universities while I was here, including at the University of Queensland. And so my, I began to think about possibly coming back here to do to do postdoctoral research. And I was fortunate to win uh, a Queen Elizabeth II Research Fellowship uh, and joined uh, James Cook University uh, in 1983. And so from that point on, my entire career has been spent here in Australia. That was a two-year fellowship. And so I suppose there could have been an issue about what happened at the end of it. Uh, but fortunately, at that time, there were plenty of academic jobs available here in Australia. And I should add that that this was during a period when there were very few academic jobs available in the United Kingdom. So it was a fortunate choice to come here. And I uh, won a position at the University of Wollongong. And then after four years, I moved up here to the University of Queensland. And I've been here now for 30 years. In fact, I celebrated having 30 years here at this university and giving more than 1,500 undergraduate lectures a couple of weeks ago. So Happy I feel anniversary. Like quite, <laughs> yeah, actual anniversary. So it feels like quite a milestone. So that's already a fascinating journey, uh, crossing sort of disciplines, but also countries. I want to just touch a little bit on your experience in the industry and, and the move back to academia. How did you find that? Because I think a lot of people are worried that if they move into industry, they can't come back into academia and, and vice versa. How did you manage to navigate those two worlds? Yeah, I think that's a really important question because you're absolutely right that when you effectively let go of academics, the path back in is going to be quite a difficult one. Uh, in my case, it happened somewhat fortuitously because in order to get uh, a position here in Australia, I had to look outside the current box of skills that I had. And I recognised that I could apply my research expertise uh, looking at biosynthesis of natural products uh, across into an emerging discipline, which was the chemistry of marine natural products. So my, my early career in Cambridge had, all, had been completely about natural products derived from fungi and how the fungus manufactures those compounds. Uh, the field of marine natural products was quite new, and I had sort of stumbled across it a bit while I was in Italy, particularly from reading the literature at the time. And so, of course, coming to Australia with its wonderful marine environment, uh, it occurred to me that I could actually apply the skill set, how do marine animals 
synthesize these potent compounds that they use potentially as chemical weapons. I could apply the skill set I'd got, uh, and that would be a novel piece of research. And that was absolutely correct. The interesting part about this was that when I arrived here, I, of course, suddenly realized to my horror that I was actually going to have to do the fieldwork associated with this interesting piece of science. And so in contrast to working with fungi, where you just got a culture, put it on media and left it to grow, I would actually have to go underwater and find the material that I was going to work on. And so this was quite an interesting challenge for somebody who grew up living in the middle of England and therefore couldn't swim very strongly, had never snorkeled, let alone learnt to scuba dive. So I think the reason I'm telling you about this is because you never know when you might have to not retrain but actually develop a, a new set of skills. And I discovered that I really enjoyed scuba diving once I got over my fear of putting my head underwater. I mean, just a minor detail in scuba diving, really. (laughs) Just a minor detail. But then, of course, remember that I've also got to learn how to identify. I worked on marine sponges at that stage, and I had no idea what they looked like. So my first expeditions underwater to collect things were complete disasters, uh, where I collected all sorts of things without any knowledge of what they are. I now know probably as much about the biology of marine sponges as a biologist. So I think that it, that's sort of one of the pleasures of science, really, mm. that you move onwards and outwards and pick up the knowledge that you need to acquire in order to deliver a, a project. So it's, it's one constant learning process. I think that's one thing that really sticks out about your career, that you really have this interdisciplinary approach to science and that you're willing not just to stay within the bounds of chemistry, but to cross over into biology, into marine biology. How do you find that that was perceived in your field? Was it seen as a bit esoteric to to be a chemist and be out there scuba diving? Well, there were uh, two or three research groups here in Australia who had started to look at the chemistry of marine natural products, uh, but they didn't look at how the marine animals were synthesising the compounds. So they saw my work as being a development and extension of what they were doing. The marine biology community, particularly in Townsville, were very accepting of a chemist coming in and trying to do some marine biology. I think what was much more interesting in fact, was when I arrived here at Queensland, the chemists were unhappy that I was doing an interdisciplinary project. They really wanted me to be a card-carrying organic chemist. And I already had diversified uh, at that point. So uh, they struggled with the direction of my research program. But the biologists in Townsville and actually also here in Queensland uh, were strongly supportive. So I've always felt that I've straddled to both communities. Mm, mm. And I think that's a really important message to find the support where you can, as well as learning to diversify and thinking, I guess, outside the box a little bit. Absolutely, because of course, one of the things that we tell young scientists, emerging scientists, is to expand your networks, expand your boundaries. And in my case, that was hugely beneficial because I, of course, had contacts in the chemistry environment, both in the UK and also here in Australia and overseas. But at the same time, I was acquiring uh, contacts and connections in marine science and marine biology and at, at the museums, for example. Mm. So I think for our, our listeners, there's 
two very important things about Mary that make her quite an intimidating person to interview. Firstly, that she has an Order of Australia, which is already an incredible achievement in and of itself. But to me, more importantly, you have a marine flatworm named after you. Is that true? Yes, that's correct. I have a little uh, flatworm which is called Maritigrella Mary Garsoni. And the story how I how this happened is quite a nice one. I was diving at Heron Island at my favourite field site with a colleague and the colleague's wife was a flatworm taxonomist. And as often happens when I'm underwater, uh, I point out things that I can't recognise. And so I pointed to this little, tiny little thing. It's about the length, it's, a, it's about one segment of my thumb in terms of size because I'd never seen anything like it before. About five minutes later in the dive, I found a second one that looked fairly similar. And at this point, the colleague with whom I was diving, I remember he was blowing bubbles through his regulator going, new, new, new. And when we got to the surface, he explained to me that it looked like a a new species of flatworm. He knew a lot about flatworms because his wife was a taxonomist and he did all of her photography. Uh, So that evening over dinner, a bottle of wine, celebrating that I'd actually made a contribution to biological science rather than chemical science, that they told me that uh, they would be able to name it in my honour once they had properly described it. So for a long time, it was XXX Mary Garsoni, and the genus name Meritigrella, of course, means little female sea sea tiger. And although I like to think that that's something to do with me, it's not. If you see a photographic image of this little animal, you discover that it's got beautiful tiger little stripes along its back. It all seems very apt. (laughs) (laughs) But I enjoy knowing that I've contributed to the biological literature as well as to the chemical literature. And it turns out that I can Google myself and find out who's collected me, for example, and what my geographic distribution is. There's not many people who can Google their own geographic distribution. Uh, And I've made the front cover of magazines, not with my own photograph, but with a photograph of of Marissa (laughs) Grella Mary Garsoni. That's absolutely fantastic. So I think one of the other things that stands out about your career is that you have an incredible network of, um, as you mentioned already very early in your career, of high-achieving women around you and that you've built up these networks over your career. Could you maybe tell our listeners a little bit about why that network is important? I think a network particularly both locally and internationally is important because you never know who you might want to just turn to, occasionally lean on, uh, seek advice from. I've described to you a number of times when I made quite dramatic changes in my job environment. So, for example, facing up to the decision, was I going to leave England or not? Uh, Was I going to leave the University of Wollongong, where I had had established a research group uh, and had been progressing up through the ranks uh, very comfortably uh, and moving here to Queensland? At those key points in time, you just want to bounce your thinking off somebody. And so it's important to have networks. And not everybody is going to give you sound advice. So the more people in those networks, the better. Uh, In my case, there was a period in the middle of my career when I hit difficulties. Uh, We won't go into a lot of detail, but I'll just simply say that at that point, I understood the value of networks and people who would be supportive no matter what. Mm. Both scientifically and also just just sort of in terms of the 
uh, emotional aspect of the key decision that you're having to go through. I mean, let, let me just, for example, and I, I'll try and make this as amusing as possible. When I was facing up to whether I was going to leave England or not, what actually happened was after I'd applied for the fellowship, I, 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 I went home from work one afternoon, got out the typewriter, which was what we used in those days, typed a couple of paragraphs, shoved the application in an envelope and forgot about it. I put it in the mail and forgot about it. Of course, that's not how we write grant or fellowship applications now. About five months later, through the door of my house in the morning came a telegram. Now, a telegram is the equivalent of today's email. I still got the copy of the telegram. And what it says is, we are making up the shortlist for the QE2 fellowship. If offered, comma, will you accept comma, or not, question mark. I mean, that's very to the point, isn't it? And it's a telegram. And as you know, telegrams are sort of things that you have to reply to urgently. So, of course, the the question is, you you haven't been offered the job. You may be shortlisted. How are you going to answer? If you answer no, you're definitely not going to be shortlisted. Just forget it. If you answer yes, in my opinion, and you're subsequently offered the fellowship you should probably accept it. It would be not correct to turn it down. So effectively, at that point in time, and in fact, it was the day of the Christmas party at work. (laughs) Don't forget that little minor details like that. I knew that I literally was making the decision about whether I was going to come to Australia just like that, right? And I found that quite stressful. I remember telling my boss about it at the Christmas party, thinking that maybe he would be fairly relaxed about it. And he told me afterwards that it completely spoiled his evening. (laughs) But did you send the telegram back immediately saying yes? Well, naturally, the fact that I'm here means that I sent the telegram back uh, saying yes. For all of the listeners, do hold on to those key emails or pieces of paper that are going to direct your fate because you'll look back on them 40 or 30 years later with complete amazement. And when I tell this story about the telegram to people, they, of course, want to know what a telegram is, but I can actually show it to them. And I've got scribbled on it the draft text of my reply. So to me, it's one of those valuable pieces of souvenirs of my professional life that uh, I will pass on to, to my to my relatives. Just doesn't seem the same with an email. <laughs> no, does I it? know. Does it's, it? <laughs> it's not quite as dramatic, is it? No. Well, I think I could stay chatting to you for a long time, but I think we have to move on to our sort of rapid fire questions that we try and ask every one of our esteemed guests to answer and give a bit of insight on. So could you tell us maybe which woman or women have been the biggest influence in your life? I struggled thinking about an answer to this, Um, I could tell you about my uh, high school chemistry teacher, Miss Armstrong, who, of course, we called Miss Angstrom. Um, But she wasn't the only one. uh, And I think particularly that the women academics that I encountered both at my undergraduate college and also subsequently when I had a research fellowship, those strong, independent Cambridge women, many of whom were not in my research discipline, They were my role models. They're the women who showed me that it would be possible to forge uh, an academic career and to to develop my own authenticity. Mm. And can you, I guess, reflecting back on your experience as a woman in science, and in particular a woman in chemistry, which Mm. is um, often underrepresented in terms of women in science, 
Do you think that women today face less gender-related obstacles than they did, say, 20 or 30 years ago? Or is it is it just different challenges that we're now facing? I'd say I think uh, different challenges. Uh, 30 years ago when I started, and by the way, I was the first woman in chemistry at the University of Wollongong, and of course the first woman in chemistry here at the University of Queensland, and the first female professor of chemistry uh, here in Queensland. Um, I think that there are still obstacles. I mean, of course, we particularly have a lot of obstacles at the moment uh, in relation to COVID and just uh, just joining all the dots together against the background of that uh, uh, pandemic. And that's most likely affecting women mm. more than it's affecting our uh, male colleagues. Well, if I were to think back 20 years, uh, and this hits the period when I was encountering difficulties, I'd have to say that I think the environment is now much more supportive of women academics. And for example, in chemistry here at UQ, we have at least three, if not four or five other women professors of chemistry. And, and that's just yeah, a that's wonderful a accomplishment for all of those uh, talented individuals. And then our final question, and this is the sort of words of wisdom we want to leave our listeners with, is what's the best piece of advice you've received in your career or what would be the one sort of piece of advice you'd offer to the next generation of women in science? Oh, I think it's got to be dream big <laughs> and dream outside of the box. You've got no idea where you're going to end up. As I said at the start of this conversation, uh, you can tell that I would have had no idea when I was an undergraduate in Cambridge that I would ever end up as a professor in Australia and scuba diving on the Great Barrier Reef. Or as a flatworm that you could Google. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's definitely also hang in there because some days are going to be rough. Too many days often appear rough, but then you have dream days, days that you just cherish and celebrate. And so you've got to hang on to those dream days and, and make the most of them. I read this morning, in fact, a nice little quote, not somebody I read, whose work I read a lot of. This is Malcolm X, uh, the American uh, and he said, the future belongs to those who prepare for it today. And I think that's a very sage piece of advice to give young scientists. I, I don't think I could sum up our conversation any better. So thank you so much for joining us and thank you for sharing your incredible science journey. Thank you very much. Well, that's all for this episode of Women in Science. In our next episode, we'll catch up with veterinarian and molecular geneticist Professor Jenny Seddon. I'm Dr Kirsty Short, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you like or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>